once again. Thank you all for joining us. This is Nuance. I'm Mike Scala, joined as always by Jay Carter, also known as Timid, the hip hop artist and chair of BLM Tokyo. What's going on, Jay? Um, just uh, getting ready for this this conversation here. This has been a, a crazy week all the way around. It's going to be a heavy one. So, yeah, you know, I think the country's regressing, but, you know, we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. On this Independence Day, right, I think we should ask ourselves, how free are we really today? Yeah, right. So we are joined by a very special guest. We've got digital marketer and former community organizer, Kershawn Murphy. What's going on, Kershawn? KJ, as we call you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, doing, doing good. Life is life has been life in the past few days, but um, but yeah. then overall in the country, man, it's just like what Jay said, Jaylon said about regressing. You know, there's a lot of have a, I talk about that. I talk a lot for over the years about periods of punishment this country has gone through and i think we're in one right now and i'll talk more about that That's yeah yeah absolutely there's been a lot of fireworks out here today so while i'm speaking you might hear the boom boom in the background uh it's not gunshots it's fireworks so <laughs> keep that in mind um we'd like to start off on the light side i don't know if we really had anything too light as we mentioned it's really been a heavy kind of week here you know, I've been in album mixing mode, so there's that. I know we've talked about that before. I've kind of been burying my head in that, you know. Um, you start, you develop these dog ears, as I call them, after listening to the song so many times. You start to hear things that no one else could possibly hear, and then you drive yourself crazy a little bit, but you also feel like you have a bit of a superpower, right? It's like, oh, I can I can hear everything, and then you listen to other songs, and you start hearing them in a whole different way also because you're in like, just like super mixing mode. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. I'm mixing is a is a beast, uh, especially when you got a bunch of different tracks and trying to make them all balance out. It's just yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it, it it takes it takes a certain type of person. <laughs> That's the big challenge, right? Because you've got different tracks, and in my particular case, I tried to have tracks that were different enough to not sound like every track is the same, but also that we're cohesive, that work together to make it sound like the same project, not some random compilation or mixtape. And it's, it's hard to find that balance, especially when you're mixing, because you want them to, again, sound different, but also cohesive. So it's like the same, but different at the same time. It's kind of hard to find that balance sometimes, and you do drive yourself crazy. You get those subtleties right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that's when I just send the session to you <laughs> even more stressed out <laughs> well luckily i've been able to clear the calendar for the most part i do have some cases coming back up in the next few weeks but you know things slow down a bit around this time of year anyway and i was able to clear the calendar to the extent possible to focus on getting these mixes done so i'm excited about that you know they're passing the car test now which is good right when you first start out it's like they're in your native system whatever studio setup you're using maybe monitors or what have you you check them out in headphones then you start taking them to other places it's like all right they're good in the headphones they're good in the earbuds they're good in the laptop now they're getting good in the car so it's exciting to finally be turning that corner like all right i'm i'm getting very close now to the mastering phase yeah yeah i did want to send a Kay just said it's been a it's been a heavy week all the way around. Um, we lost an uncle um, yesterday. Yep. Uh, he used to sometimes listen to the show as well. So oh, wow, my condolences on that. I didn't know yeah. about that. Wow. Well, 
you know, I guess we should get into it then because we do have a lot to cover here on this. We've got the two Supreme Court cases I know we wanted to mention, at least two, right? Right. right. And there was the city budget as well. Not a whole lot of exciting information to come out of that. I guess we could even start off with that to get that out the way because it is a $107 billion budget deal, the largest in New York City history. But as of now, there aren't too many headlines coming out of it, right? In spite of it being the biggest budget in city history, you are seeing cuts across the board, and that became a source of controversy. You had progressive groups in particular urging council members to vote against it because of the cuts. And in fact, if you look at the final breakdown of votes, it was mostly the conservative, I mean, rather the progressive uh, wing of the city council to vote no. I think only one Republican voted no. Most of the more moderate members voted yes. But one thing to keep an eye on here is the mayor is saying that no schools will be cut. Remember last year, that was a big point of contention. Jay, we had law trust on here who actually sued the city over that. Um, So they're saying that no individual schools will be cut, will be cut. But there's some questions over that because he's saying that the mayor says that there's no desire to cut schools uh, in the middle of the year. So it's saying no school will cut, we cut to begin the academic year. Uh, but there are cuts in the middle of the year, mid-year budget updates, and there's no desire to cut them in the middle of the year. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. And I think in this current election cycle, you saw some council members criticized for voting for the budget last year, which did cut education. And they were trying to say that individual schools were not cut. To some, it seemed like they were playing a bit of a word game there. So again, we have to see that. I mean, there are teachers who definitely suffered from these cuts last year. And I think that's why some of these groups are pushing back now. They don't want to see people losing their jobs and the people of New York suffering. Right. Absolutely. You said this is a $107 billion budget? Jesus. Yeah, $107 billion. Let me, let me get a little bit. Let me hold something. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to fathom how it's the biggest budget in city history, and yet cuts to spending are being made across the board. Right. right. Those things are happening at the same time. So you right. think all this money, why are we cutting all these things? Well, it means that they're putting even they're putting more money into into other areas. So the question is always when when there's cuts is what are they cutting? So are it, it cutting? seems that they, they did not restore any library funds. If, if if I'm looking at it correctly. No, no, they did. They restored thirty six point two million dollars to libraries. Ah, later restored. OK, yeah, right. Um. There was some funding for city supported lawyers it was increased but not to the requested level right so yeah you always gotta look at what they're cutting um and what they're what they're adding to like wh- who got extra money and why Eighty-one thousand people it says were asylum seekers city help care for which cost billions of dollars alone so that's a big part of the budget right and that, that's kind of what we were talking about on uh, on a previous show, right? When New York was um, discussing whether or not to give the health care to undocumented folks. But this isn't that. I mean, that would come through the state. This is just carrying oh, okay. silo seekers through the city, right? This is the city budget. Right. And at the, I think we also mentioned this on the show, the CUNY cuts, right? The mayor was proposing, I think, a $41 million cut to the city university of new york right this budget restores 32.4 million 
to that budget. So it doesn't get you all the way there, but it significantly makes up those proposed cuts. So unfortunately, the headlines and the articles that I'm seeing really focus more on the restorations. Right. Right. Like not so much the cuts, but where the money was put back. Um, I'm not seeing a whole lot in terms of itemizing where the cuts are, but everything I'm seeing shows that there have been cuts across the board, which I guess is, is why you're not seeing that itemization. They're basically saying everything was cut. But again, it's kind of hard to reconcile that. Why is it the biggest budget we've ever had in history if everything is being cut? Yeah, right. It's like you have such a large budget for such a large city, literally a city that has the largest school system in the country, too. Yeah. And they're talking about, oh, this is the biggest budget, but there's also cuts. And especially when you start looking at the education system, you really want to look at like what exactly is going to be cut there because you're talking about, I don't know what it is, correct if I'm wrong, but I remember it was something like almost a million students in the New York City system, you know, but it's, uh, so that's a huge thing. That's no small, small thing if you start talking about cutting from specifically education in the New York City yeah. system. Yeah. Right. And then you see tuition hikes at the city schools as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's 78% of city employees now working under new labor agreements. The city has settled labor deals over the past few months. The increased pay and benefits included have been a major source of new costs, $16 billion over the next four years. So I guess that's where you're seeing the cost, right? You're seeing some of these expenses and, and you have inflation and you just have things be more expensive now. <laughs> New York City is right. only being a very expensive city, right? So right. in spite of cuts, you are seeing it, it it's, it's costing increasingly more money every year to take care of our people. And, you know, it, it's already having issues, um, as we've talked about before, as far as um, what's going on in, in Manhattan regarding like empty buildings and stuff because of the costs and because of, you know, lasting effects of what happened during COVID. Um, and then I think it's going to get a little bit worse because there was another Remember, we did talk about before about the congestion pricing, which seems to have gone through. So that's going to make it more expensive, even just to get in and around Manhattan was already facing some issues. So I think we're going to have some or they're going to have some stuff to deal with. Ninety five million dollars to fund the expanded eligibility of the fair fares program, which provides half price metro cards to low income New Yorkers. So you are seeing new programs created and existing programs expanded, which is accounting for some of this increase, but you're also seeing cuts, right? So again, I think it's something we just need to keep an eye on. And when I say things like no school will be affected by this, well, we'll have to hold them accountable on that and make sure that's right. actually the case. I'd be interested in looking at, I don't know if we're moving on, but I know like I'd be interested to look at too, like as far as like housing, because you know what, um, Jay just mentioned about, you know, empty buildings and stuff like that. Back in my community organizing days, there were days, there were times I'd go into these buildings that had absentee landlords and folks were kind of fending for themselves. And I remember there was a building I was trying to organize for and some of the people in there had no hot water. So they were like trying to warm up hot water on the stove to be able to bathe, you know, and that's when you start looking at the New York Housing Authority and kind of for help, you know, and, uh, and I'm just wondering what kind of resources they have nowadays. And of course, I'm talking some many years ago when I was doing that, but 
Uh, I think that's something that's a, that's a, an important institution in New York, especially just from my own experiences as a New Yorker. Sure. Places, but then also as a community organizer and helping uh, community members to organize in their buildings, to organize around getting positive change to happen inside of their building when needs were just were not being met. You know, so it's uh, it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, this budget allocates four billion dollars in capital funding for affordable housing, and that's all from two point two billion dollars this past year. So almost oh, almost the affordable housing budget. That's good. That's good. So it always it, it it always like I don't know it's it's always funny to me what what some people would consider and usually in these budgets or in these discussions what they would consider affordable housing. Oh, that's a whole different discussion, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Like, it's four thousand dollars a month. This is affordable housing, like, <laughs> right? No, use, I've talked about this a lot. They've used the area median income, but the area includes right. outside of new york city it goes into westchester Nassau, suffolk it's not really an area it's like the entire right. region of the, of the country yeah it's ridiculous right. yeah yeah so right. so yeah we'll move on like we said we may have to revisit this conversation to see how some of this plays out right one thing i would say just to wrap up on this is you know the mayor and the speaker of the council shake hands over the budget it's kind of a tradition in new york city and council member charles barron made the statement that it was the least firm handshake he's ever seen he thinks the speaker only gave him three fingers interesting yeah taken out of context uh, that could sound very <laughs> you know what? the politics of it is interesting because really you had all of these progressive groups putting pressure on all of the council members to vote against the budget and then you saw the more progressive council members who really relied on that political support voted no then you had more moderate ones who still kind of wanted to be seen as progressive but they would vote yes but they would hedge a little bit so like the speaker i think falls under that category like she's like i'm going to vote for this but i'm going to make a statement about how i don't really love what i'm doing i think she even said like this was a very difficult budget to pass we had to do it but i'm not really happy about it so you do see those politics play out True, true, I don't know the city council. I don't know if y'all talked about it, but Yusef Salon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's that's a big story. Probably the biggest story coming out of this election cycle because it's, it's kind of a slow year in general. But that's a big one. Central Park Five. Yep. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. You know, you have the guy who won a Central Park Five, who Trump literally called for their executions back. That's in right. The 80s, that's right. You know? Took an uh, ad out. What was it? The New York Times. The New York Times. He yeah. took a whole ad to make the case for executing all of them, bringing back. And they the were children. Time. Yeah, and they were children at the time. Yeah, they were kids. They yeah, were kids. yeah. And and when they and then when they were exonerated, he refused. He refused to walk back his his position. Right. No. Yeah. To this day, Absolutely. he thinks they, this they, they should have yeah. still been executed. To this day, he thinks that. Yeah. 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 No. So it's really yeah. awesome to see that, you know, out of that from from that one end of what happened in the eighties up until now, him becoming a member of the city council. That'd be really cool to see kind of what happened. That's good progress. Yeah. 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 Also shout out Chris Banks, whom I know personally. He won his primary. He actually beat Charles Barron, who I also like, by the way. But Congratulations to him. He'll be taking his seat in the city council next year to represent East New York, which is the neighboring district from here. So it is good to have people you know and you can work with in office. So it's always good. People that you think will do a good job. Absolutely. So, all right. We talked about that being progress. You know, yeah. a lot of times if you feel like or you see maybe 
one step forward, two steps back, with in this case, maybe three, four, five, six more steps back. Uh, the Supreme Court decision. And um, like we said, there's actually more than one, but the major one was on affirmative action. That was the, the big one. One I took notes on students for fair admissions, the Harvard and UNC, 237 pages. It was the majority decision led by Roberts. And then you had a, uh, a concurring decision, which we'll talk about from Thomas. And you had two dissents. You had uh, Sotomayor and Jackson with her own dissent. Yeah. And actually, we'll talk about this more. This was the first time since 2019 where dissents were read from the bench at the Supreme Court, showing kind of the gravity of the moment. They actually read their dissents out loud. Mm. Yeah, so, and that, that was the chance for Jackson and Thomas to kind of go at each other. Oh, yeah. And okay. Thomas, again, will go into more detail on that. Thomas, once again, is more conservative than the conservative majority. Right. So, right. For those who don't know, this was about affirmative action when it comes to college admissions. And of course, Harvard and UNC were the two colleges in this particular case, but it extends beyond those two. It's about college admissions, generally speaking. And the argument by this group of plaintiffs called Students for Fair Admissions, they were a nonprofit group organized just to fight this one issue. Their argument was that affirmative action was not constitutional. They said it was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause on the 14th Amendment. And that's really what this case is all about from a constitutional point of view, whether the Equal Protection Clause allows race to be considered as a factor in college admissions. Of course, we know the court decided right. the answer is no, and we cannot consider race anymore. Let's not. Um, oh, did he freeze or did I freeze? I don't think we're frozen. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you had a frozen face there for a second. It was like, <laughs> yeah, like you were in pain or something. I think it's me. My my connection seems to be unstable. Um, yeah, and that 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 group that you mentioned, uh, Students for Fair Admissions, is actually bankrolled by a man named Blum, who's Blum. Uh, mm -hmm. in the background. And uh, so we'll get into that. And it's also. Um, important to notice how the, how uh asian americans are being played against um oh yeah uh, other folks in it, in this fight and to be fair the the people participating are are actively participating in it so you know they don't get off on that either right well the majority opinion starts off by talking about Plessy v. Ferguson and Brown v. Board of Education. And this is the kind of thing that they did in that abortion decision that we talked about. Hmm. They like going into the historical context, not of the issue so much, but of the Supreme Court jurisprudence. And they make themselves seem like they're fighters for civil rights somehow. Hmm. It, like they, they, they try to act like they have the high ground on this, right? Like Brown v. Board of Education, we decided that you couldn't have discrimination in public schools. And now we're saying that you can't do it in college. They're acting like this is another landmark case for the side of civil rights, which is very odd and quite frankly, ignorant. But they've done that multiple times now. Absolutely. That's, that's a sure. typical conservative talking point is they try and twist the words around uh, one, like you mentioned, those uh, landmark cases, Place versus Ferguson, Brown versus Brown v. Board of Education, and even MLK himself. That's probably the one they do all the time. And I've even seen since this uh, this this ruling came down, 
people saying, oh, yeah, well, this it's good they did this because, you know, MLK said um, mm -hmm. the content of your character, character, you know, over. And that's what they use in the, in the comments on online and that sort of thing. And it's a it's a it's a, a total distortion. Uh, right. Okay. And I think you hit on it there. That's really the whole fundamental argument from a philosophical point of view, right? The conservative way of thinking about this and the more, I, would, I don't even want to call it progressive, but I, I would say the common sense way of thinking about it, or the, the more accurate way, <laughs> that's it sound too biased. But I think that the conservative way of thinking about it, for lack of a better phrase, is that all of this kind of happens in a vacuum and you don't put the real historical context into it. You don't look at what's going on historically or in society. You just look at it like uh, we're all already inherently equal and therefore anything you do is going to disrupt that equilibrium. But it's a very naive, ignorant and privileged way of approaching the situation that isn't really in line with what reality is. Right. Yeah. It's a self-serving way of approaching it. Yeah, they know exactly what they're what they're doing, and and they're using the distorting the words on purpose to do that. And and you mentioned that MLK statement; that's one of their favorites Absolutely. to throw out there. You know. Yep, and you mentioned you know Mike the the uh, the context, like throwing out context. Yeah, and that's literally what they're trying to do with the whole critical race theory thing. Oh, sure. To the schools and throwing out these books, saying you can't talk about certain things from history and some of that, especially things that are that tie into this. That right. will actually provide the context of why affirmative action is needed in, in college admissions. Like we right. really have HBCUs in this country because uh, African Americans just were not allowed to go to college right. at these uh, right. institutions, right. and so and, we. Have and a lot of that comes up in the dissent. The majority opinion doesn't want to acknowledge any of that. Right. 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 And and they don't want to acknowledge that it's still in play today. That right. these things still right. happen today. Exactly. And, and, you know, absolutely. There are. It's easier to get into college for uh, uh, you know Black Americans and non-white Americans than it was previously. Today, even if there's not affirmative action, it's definitely easier. But that doesn't that doesn't you know uh, cover everything. That doesn't make it the equitable situation that's needed because there's still this discrimination that takes place. And we see it in not only in college admissions, but we're seeing it in different places. It, it comes up in the news constantly about, you know, even real estate appraisals um, or uh, job situations where two two candidates could be one white, one black with the exact same qualification, exact same history and experience, exact same age. And more often than not, they're going to choose the, the white candidate over over the black candidate. It's just part of where the country is, and we have to acknowledge that so that we can make things more equitable. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, affirmative action is one of those things to help help things become more equitable, help give African-Americans, uh, uh, you know, a, a chance, you know. And and it's so interesting because, you know, Clarence Thomas, you know, he he praised affirmative action decades ago when he was admitted. I think it was into Yale Law School. I think it was uh, where Clarence Thomas might be wrong. But he praised it back then. And then, even at some point under Reagan, Reagan appointed him to be the head of the Equal Employment Opportunity EOC. You know, and he's like, that was his role was to help make sure uh, the places of employment, you know, are, are, are equal as far as from a race standpoint. Right. And then he goes into the Supreme Court and here we are decades later and he with this ruling, he helps to literally tear down the ladder that he climbed. Yeah. <laughs> they helped him and up now, to where he is. Right. And <laughs> now he's advocating to actually go even further than 
what he himself advocated for since being on Supreme Court. He even says that in his concurrence that, you know, 20 years ago, I thought that we should have some kind of affirmative action. Now I think we should have none. So he's going even more and more extreme as time goes on. Exactly. So, and I want to talk about that. They bring up right away this case called Grutter from 2003, where the Supreme Court said that racial quotas were not allowed in college admissions, but race could be a factor. Right. And there is something in there that says that they hoped in 25 years that would no longer be necessary to achieve equality. Now, obviously, that was not the law. That was something they put in there in their decision. We know these decisions are very long. They say a lot of things Not everything they put in the decision is the holding of the case is the actual law with the constitutional analysis. A lot of it is what we call dicta, which is kind of points that are just made. And they might be interesting to look at to kind of give you an idea as to what justices are thinking and, and what have you. But they're not the actual law. Right. The majority here seems to treat it as if it is almost like the law where they make a big deal of this in 25 years they said it it should no longer be necessary that was 20 years ago i mean it's not like a sunset provision right it's not like congress passes a law and says this will only be good for the next 20 25 years that wasn't the case at all but that's kind of how they're taking it um let's keep in mind that this is only 20 years ago and they and they aspirationally said 20 years ago we hope in 25 years we hope in the quarter century it won't be necessary to look at race anymore but you know, obviously in 2003, they, they wouldn't have known where we would be as a society in 2023. They were being optimistic about that. That's not a reason now, less than 25 years later, to say, well, because they said that 20 years ago, we can undo all this now. So, yeah, I mean, we're talking, we're, we're 60 years from, you know, the Civil Rights Act. And, and it's, you know, that 20 years was, was passed multiple times, three times over. So it's like, you know, it's 20 years is not enough time to undo the the hundreds of years prior and the continued mentality of the people that um, still have these beliefs and still follow these practices. Right. Yeah. So let's get into the constitutional analysis here a little bit, because like I said, it's the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment that says that everyone is entitled to equal protection under the law, but the Supreme court has always considered any attempts to discriminate or favor race and any race-based discrimination of any variety, they've considered that uh, having to meet a strict scrutiny standard where it's presumptively unconstitutional, but it can be allowed under narrow circumstances when two factors are met. Number one, there needs, there needs to be a compelling governmental interest that the state must articulate. And number two, it must be narrowly tailored to meet that interest, meaning it needs to be the least restrictive way of meeting that goal. So it's a pretty tough standard, but it can be met. Um, in that Grutter case, for example, they decided that it, it was met under those circumstances. Not to have a quota, but you can have that factor. You, you, can, you can consider race one of the factors and emissions to meet the compelling government interest of having a more diverse student population. So right away, the court here is saying that neither of those two factors is met. They're saying that there's no compelling interest. They instead say it's a commendable goal. And here's where I actually, in my notes, I asked whether this was argued the wrong way. I'm not sure if the argument here was poor or if the court just disregarded the good arguments and tried to twist it to the outcome that they wanted. I would have to go into more detail on, on actually looking at the briefs and actually looking at the arguments more. But what they're saying is, in order to meet that compelling governmental interest prong of the test, the schools, and we should make the distinction between UNC, which is a state school, right, and Harvard, which is a private school. Right. So in order to have the constitutional 
analysis. You have, I guess, as UNC's case, the Harvard case would fall more into the Civil Rights Act because that's private. But nonetheless, this is the analysis that they're using. So what they're saying is that the, the compelling interest here, as cited by the respondents, the schools, were training future leaders, acquiring new knowledge based on diverse outlooks, and promoting a marketplace of ideas. The court is saying those are commendable goals, but they're not compelling interests. My question is, why would you even argue training future leaders and a marketplace of ideas? Those do sound a little bit vague and, and not strong enough. If you're trying to meet this, this very difficult, compelling interest standard, why not argue the compelling interest is combating systemic racism and ensuring fairness in emissions, making sure there's no racial discrimination? That's really the compelling interest to me, because if you're describing that just as training new leaders and things like that, you are kind of leaving yourself vulnerable to be attacked this way by the other lawyers and by the court. I agree. If they did, if that was the the, the argument, then I think that would be a very weak argument. Because um, I'll even go further. I, I, I totally agree with what you said, Mike. And I would say even argue the economical impact. You know, if you want to really see how race impacts this country, look at the economics of it, how it impacts uh, earnings, it impacts home ownership, Right. Uh, the amount of people around amount of minorities in the country who own uh and just say specifically african americans who own uh homes is very low and you know and 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 you could make an argument a counter argument to the conservatives who try and say oh we need to pull up our pull up pull ourselves up by our bootstraps well that's what we're trying to do you know and part of part of the uh going the pathway to being able to uh to uh earn more money to be more economically uh stable uh and is part of it is home ownership and going being able to go to college being able to get into college get a good degree and be able to get a uh, get a job is part of that and if you have all these different systems in place as part of the, the systemic racism in this country that helps that that has barriers in place for us to do that it makes it harder you know and uh but uh so it's like that argument is, itself would be a more for me a more uh more compelling one you take that go from the economic standpoint it's about the money you know it's like when i was at florida state and i was a, a political science uh, a student, I think one of my first class classes, uh, my professor asked, like, what what do you guys think politics is? And then uh, people were trying to throw out their own answers and stuff like that. And he was like, oh, ultimately, politics is who gets what and when, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and 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 that's what it boils down to. It's like possible politics is. And that's what all these different systems in place are have, were put in place uh, historically to prevent certain segments of the society to be able to reap the benefits of what they call the American dream. You know, we don't have we don't have the same access to that American dream. We're trying to have access to it. And uh, affirmative action was one way that allowed us to. And so, you know, they want to take that away. Then it's going to make it harder. They think it's going to help. They think it's from a philosophical standpoint. It makes uh, admissions fair, but it doesn't. It really doesn't. And it just this just goes to goes to show it's a reminder of how important HBCUs are. And at the same time, it even makes them even more important again. You know, but I think I, I I think you know I think it's I don't know hopeful maybe to think that that they think this is going to help. I think they know exactly what they're doing. I oh, think they know yeah. exactly that this is going to disenfranchise folks, and they don't care because they they want the outcome that they've wanted since affirmative action was put into place, right? Since their their ancestors were were enacting the, the actions that were made affirmative action necessary exactly. like this is just an extension of that same mentality and they've been fighting to get rid of it for uh, a long time and 
yeah, I can't I can't give them any allowances that they that they're misguided in, in this way. They're purposefully manipulating it. And that, and that question comes up when you look at um what was the 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 organization America's first, not America's first, the um the student for fair admissions, mm-hmm. right? This this group is being backed by, I believe it's Edward Blum. Um, this conservative that's, that's pushing this agenda. However, the face of this and the face of that lawsuits and who's been kind of recently on the front lines of this fight to, to get rid of affirmative action are Asian Americans who are complaining that they're getting passed over for admissions to these higher schools because of affirmative action requirements for black and brown students. When, first of all, their, their admissions in these schools are higher, higher. Are, are higher almost to the level or higher than some white students. They're some of the highest admissions percentage wise in these schools. So they're not getting passed over for anything. All right, there's a couple of mediocre students who are unhappy that they didn't get in. And now they're trying to attack the systems that made it fair that they stand on the backs of because they couldn't get into college before the, the fights that brought about things like civil rights acts, things like affirmative action. And so this is where where the position is and so they say oh well this is not uh, students for fair mission is not a, an asian american organization but you go to the website every page every picture on the page there is all is all asian americans like this is who's heading the fight on this but it's being pushed by blum in the background mm-hmm. let me ask and, you jay because yeah. this comes up in the case a little bit also is it i mean i think i know the answer but you say you go on the website and you say you see Asian Americans on almost every page. Is it mostly East Asian, South Asian, or a mix of both? It look well, you, you can't really tell for sure, but um I think it was uh you know East Asian, maybe. Right. Yeah. Okay. Which would be which would play a little bit into colorism. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, on that point, I would say. You know, those students participating in there, you know, they don't completely get free of blame, even though you can say that their strings are being pulled by Blum because they still have to have that anti-blackness and that discriminatory sentiment themselves to actually push towards this and participate in it. Um, But, you know, they may feel that they're being discriminated against, but they're really not. Like I said, they're 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 overrepresented as far as the size of their population. In, They're in, overrepresented, in, but I, I believe that there's a thought that without affirmative action, even more would be able to get in than now. Well, yeah, they're saying that there's a group that's saying that I can't get in because affirmative action has taken away some spots that I should have gotten because you look at my academic record or whatever. And in a lot of cases, sometimes these, well, not a lot of cases, in some of these cases, you look at these people's academic record and they didn't have the they didn't have the academics to get in. They're just disgruntled. Uh, right. This was the right. case with um, um, Mindy Cowling's brother, the actress, Mindy Cowling. Right. Uh, her brother tried to get into school, couldn't get into these certain schools that he wanted to get into. Uh, and he pretended to be black mm-hmm. to get into the school because he had dark skin. He shaved his head. He called himself Jamal. And he got in as an affirmative action um, student. Uh, pretending to be african-american for his time in the school um but he didn't have the academics to go to the schools that he wanted but he tried to use this this loophole and take someone else's spot to do it i remember when i was applying for law school they made a big deal about 
Are you an underrepresented minority? And that was really targeting Asian Americans, right? Because Asian Americans would say, well, we're minorities. We should get this boost as well. But they said, well, no, there are already too many Asian Americans in higher education. So we want underrepresented minorities. And so being Asian American was actually a strike against you when you were applying for law school. Right. And so, and so some are feeling that as, as a discrimination um, against them and they're you're using um, black and brown folks as the reasoning why. Yeah, not- I want to talk about when we get to it, because they actually use the term zero sum game. And that's also something you see, I think, philosophically between conservatives and others about basically if you're benefiting one group of people in their mind, that means that you're hurting them. And right. The real, I think that the, you know, the, the better way to look at it is you're actually helping everyone. But let's, um, let's get to that when we get to it, because I've got a lot of notes on this opinion here. The next thing the court starts talking about is they say that the emissions process falsely assumes everyone of a certain race thinks alike. And they're really attacking this diversity of ideas, diversity in you know, a marketplace of ideas argument, which again made me wonder if this was argued the wrong way, because it is easy to argue that, you know, if you're saying that the compelling interest here, you know, why, why we think this should be upheld is because we want a diversity of ideas. It is easy for the court to say, well, aren't you just assuming that everyone of a certain race thinks the same way? Or why are you assuming that that you're getting a diversity of ideas just by admitting people of a certain race. So again, I don't think that that was the right focus. Now, to be fair, I think the court probably chose to focus on those. If they're picking apart the weaker points of it, right? Right. Uh, You know, I don't think just saying we want a diversity of ideas is the best approach if you're arguing this. I agree. It goes back to the point I was making earlier. Yeah. Should have gone the economics route. Yeah. Yes. That's that's, that's the big thing of what, uh, about what race has it has impact on in this country. It really is the economics of how we are able to live. Uh, even the justice system, it's economics. You know, yeah. uh, you uh, you are uh, you know the the majority of uh, mar- people are like mar- people who are arrested and put in jail for marijuana use are African Americans, but we're only like twelve percent of the people who use drugs in this country, but almost fifty percent. Of uh, people in jail for uh, marijuana is our is our African American, you know. But then you get out, and uh, what can you do when it comes to trying to get a job and all, and provide for your family? Also, it, it, it impacts uh, the economics. Race has always been about race, uh, been about power and money. You know, it's about uh, back from slavery. It was trying to make as much money for the South as possible without paying for for the labor. And uh, and even now, one thing about about the affirmative action, this this ruling, it even it, it, it didn't say anything about uh, not allow not allowing uh, colleges to consider gender. You know, <laughs> it didn't say that they weren't allowed to use uh, uh, legacy admissions for like right. just because your parent went to the school. They said it's not, not that's not allowed. Yeah, they didn't say that 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 shouldn't be allowed. But they said and they even left the door open for some other things, which we'll get into. Um, yeah concerning race even so, so it's right. kind of, I think it, it is narrow but but you know the court does generally have to issue a narrow decision just based on what's before it right so that goes back mm-hmm. to the case that was brought and the group that brought that case they were focusing on those other factors they were just focusing on race right right and, and i think you know a, a lot of people are bringing up this idea about legacy admissions and it's a it's a really good point because those spots are also held for legacy folks so that means people who are who want this this merit based admissions process 
should be looking at that and be like, well, you know, I couldn't get in because that spot was held for his son or his daughter. So that that's another thing that needs that should be considered. Now I've seen I, I've seen on on the internet, and I thought it was a good idea, and I might want to get you guys' thoughts on it. And in regards to that, people are saying, okay, well, and I think there was a group that filed uh, a civil rights complaint in this regard uh, after this ruling um, to say that just in the same way the Harvard um, uh, lawsuit was brought forth to say that the legacy admissions is is unfair and unjust. So in the same way, saying that, you know, it's unfair for the admissions for, for this to be in place. So could there or should there be a case on the exact same thought process challenging the legacy admissions? Yeah. So he'll keep that same energy type type case, you know. Right. You know, and they had to blow back into their faces because they want to keep their legacy. They want to keep they that. They want to get their sons in. But if we use the same logic. Yeah. Is that an official policy of the schools or are they just kind of doing that on the low? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's an official policy. It's like with, uh, if I remember right, you know, George W. Bush, the whole thing, you know, he used to joke about not being the greatest student and he wasn't. But he right. got into, was it Yale, right? But because sure. his dad. Sure. And he was able to go to Yale just fine. You know, I don't think it's a. I don't. I don't know if it's an official a policy, but it's it's one of those, one of those uh, poorly kept secrets, right? It's right. A, it's a practice that I think we all that everyone knows exists, right? Right. But would still be arguing that they should be allowed to do it, or they'd be arguing we're not doing that anyway. They they deserve right. to get it. You know. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. That would be difficult to to argue against because the school say, "Well, that's not our policy." Right. Yeah, you know? that's the thing, right? This this case is about the policy. Now, what ends up actually happening might be a separate discussion, right? But this is about what right. I mean, they they could then go. They'd have to go through um and go through the admissions process and see yeah. who's been admitted and look at their their credentials, right. how they got in, and and see. Well, you know, that may not be your official policy, but look, this this past 50, 60 years of your admissions, this is what you're right. practicing. Right. Well, let's talk about that because that kind of ties to this next point. You said there's a two pronged test here to meet strict scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause when you're dealing with any kind of racial discrimination. So the court said the compelling government interest was not met. They said it was, you know, commendable goals, but not a, a compelling interest. The second prong of that is whatever you're doing has to be narrowly tailored to meet that compelling interest or has to be done in the least restrictive way. And the court said that the schools here failed to articulate a meaningful connection between the means and the goals. And they say the racial categories here are, quote, plainly overbroad. And in that case, they're saying there's no distinction between East and South Asian. They say they're arbitrary and undefined, and they use Hispanic as an example there. And they say they're under-inclusive because there's no category for Middle Eastern students. And so basically they're saying the policy isn't very fleshed out or fleshed out enough to meet that prong, to satisfy that prong of the test. They're saying it's all kind of vague and the school is basically just doing what it wants. And the court is saying the university's main response is trust us. And again, I put in my notes, was this just argued poorly? I mean, why wouldn't they come with all kinds of data to justify what they're doing? Why wouldn't they show why the classifications were set up the way they were? The court makes it sound like they just did whatever they want and they were just arrogant and wouldn't or didn't have real data to back up what they were doing. And it does sound like it. I mean, sound like it could have been argued differently or better, like it was argued poorly. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like. Although I'll, I'll be fair, when I get to the dissent, 
they seem to suggest something different. So it could be a case of the majority just, you know, cherry picking the weaker points. But, yeah. you know, I, I just had these questions like, why is the court even saying that? Why, why would the court put in the decision that the university's responses trust us? You would think the university would come with all kinds of numbers to back up these classifications. They should. You know, yeah. they, one university, the universities themselves that have the data. Um, there's plenty of data out there. I mean, there's yeah. data yeah. from the CDC about it, about because race literally impacts health in this country. So they've done plenty of studies right. on that. Right. Um, so there's plenty of data out there. To, to really to, to push the argument. So I yeah, explain why you have these classifications, right. what data is supporting them, why you need them. You know, don't just say, trust us, this is how we do it, because we want to do it. That's how the court made it sound anyway. That's, that's right. what we're doing. So here's what I put down as a bad faith argument by the court. It says that the Equal Protection Clause mandates that race may never be used as a negative. The colleges say it isn't a negative. But the court says college admissions is inherently a zero-sum game where benefiting one race inherently comes at the expense of other races. Now, again, I see this as kind of the conservative way of thinking on the issue broadly. Helping someone else hurts me automatically, but I don't think that's the way we should be thinking about this. I think we should be thinking about it in terms of, you know, if you help an underprivileged group, you're actually helping everyone, right? It's good for the country. It's good for all of us. Exactly. It's good for the college classes. I mean, make up of the class, all the students there, not just the underrepresented minorities. Everyone in the class will have a better experience if it's a more diverse student body representative of the population of the country. I mean, this isn't just helping one person at someone else's expense. This should be thought of as being good for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of what what's the the the, the old analogy? Like if you you know, if you raise up something at the top, you're only benefiting people at the top. You raise up something at the bottom, it raises everybody up. Yep. You know, so you look at it, you look at a house. If you raise, if you raise the roof up like, you know, 10 inches, like it's going to benefit tall people mainly. But if you raise the floor up 10 inches, everybody goes up 10 inches. Exactly. Yep. Rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah. It's there. like, you know, that their argument is just the whole, the whole thing conservatives like to say about reverse racism, reverse discrimination. And all yeah. That. So it doesn't even really doesn't exist, you know, honestly, when you look at it from a power standpoint, uh, from like from what race is right or from racism is, you know, it's a power thing. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and there's other things like to, to the to the point, too, is where a lot of these arguments and even from the Supreme Supreme Court standpoint is looking at, oh, if we have these policies in place that negatively impact another group, you're automatically assuming Black students who are um, who are uh, benefiting from affirmative action shouldn't be there, you know, because you don't know what their grades are, you know. But right. the, the 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 idea behind right. affirmative action is to make sure that African American students who actually do deserve to be there get a shot at being at Harvard, get a shot at being at these other all, all these different schools, you know. Yeah. And but then you have the 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 diverse are the 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 other argument from conservatives who try and act like. Oh, they shouldn't be there if it's just because of the, because of the race. When it's not, it's never the case that, and that's that's how these college admissions programs go. They with affirmative action, they they do not admit literally because of race. These students right. deserve to be there. They performed academically to be there, you know. Uh, and then, uh, but then they don't want to admit it. But honestly, the stance of trying to assume that a black student is getting to a student only because of their race is all is honestly racist in itself. Because you're automatically assuming that the student shouldn't be there because of their race. And right. they only got in because of it. Yeah. Right. And those, I, students, I, I, those students, 
I was going to say, like you said, those those students still have to perform academically, right? It's not like they're going to be like, oh, well, you know, we're going to pick, we need, we need some black students. So um, we're going to get this one here who's a D student or a C student. Right. Like, no, the person that they're admitting still has to be right. academically inclined or at least meet those standards. It's just making sure that this race-based discrimination doesn't exclude them from that shot. And that comes up in a dissent also, which we'll get into, where they say basically before affirmative action, only the most elite students who are black or Hispanic got into Harvard and schools like that. Most of them wouldn't, you know, even if they deserve to, even if maybe the white classmates had grades that were comparable, they wouldn't get in. Only like the, the, t- you know, the top of the top ever got in. And so this leveled the playing field a little bit. So we'll get yeah. into that more. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about this whole zero sum argument, because to me, it's a bad faith argument. They're saying that, okay, mandates about race may never be used as a negative, but if you're going to use this whole zero sum argument, it's always going to be a negative, right? Because you're saying that by definition, helping one group always comes at the expense of another group. And therefore, anything you do to help someone is going to hurt someone else, right? And so, Exactly. It's always going to be zero. If, 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 if that's the way you think of it, it's a zero sum game, right? I mean, that applies to, for example, MWBEs, minority women owned business enterprises. I've worked a lot on that in Albany. Mm-hmm. If you're given contracts, you know, more contracts, city and state contracts to minority and women owned businesses, if you have this whole zero sum game mentality, then you're saying, well, that means it's coming at the expense of, I don't know, white and Asian businesses, other, other businesses, men, you know, male businesses. And then, so then everything that you do is going to be a negative to someone else, if that's the way you think of this, right? And so then you wouldn't be able to do anything um, with race in mind. That's why the idea that, you know, race may never be used as a negative, only a positive, but that's, that's an impossible standard to meet under this whole zero sum game philosophy. Right. And I think that's, that's, that, that's a key part of their decision is that it's going to open the door to a whole bunch of other lawsuits. Yeah. from conservatives to go after all sure. these other programs and then it's going to be it's a regression you know it's ultimately trying to you know maga folks they say make america great again we always say what what when you know and they are you know in their mind we, we know what they're talking about we're talking we, we know they're talking about many decades ago and yeah. decisions about where this case takes us right, yeah. right. exactly yeah, and it, in in that in that regard that i think we're seeing um you know Two two things here, like um, conservatives have been waiting for this to happen, right? So they're they're hitting the ground running with it. And um, Stephen Miller, who was former advisor to to Trump uh, when he was occupying uh, the White House, uh, I'm not going to call him by that title. Uh, when he was occupying the White House, um, Stephen Miller is the head of this legal organization called America's First Legal. And shortly after the decision came down, he sent a a warning letter to over 200 law schools in the country saying that you better follow the Supreme Court decision or we're coming or we're coming after you. Right. He put this letter out to over 200 colleges. So they've been waiting. They've been chomping at the bit. Like if you if you don't follow it to the letter, we're going to file suit against your university. Um, and so that that's one point. And another point is that um, and your point, KJ, about how this is opening up different things or how it's going to bring about this inequality is when california in 98 got rid of the affirmative action college admissions they saw a massive very significant drop in college enrollment for uh african-american students um and hispanic students yep. um 
immediately. So that showed that it proved that these practices are still being done in the admission process. Um, now they've put some other things in place to try to, to, to mitigate that in, in the interim. And I think now they're starting to see some, some good results where it's getting to be a little bit more to that level to what it was when they did have affirmative action for the other things that they put in place. However, it's taken decades for that to, to happen. Um, yeah. and so well, yeah. here's where the Supreme Court is trying to leave some room, I guess, for race to still be a consideration in certain areas. And they kind of do this via footnote, but they're saying colleges can still use how race has affected a person's life in right. their admissions process, just not the consideration of race by itself. So you can still have students write essays on their experiences, yeah. you know, things like that. And so if they're doing that, they could probably still do much of what they've been doing, just maybe calling it something a little bit different. Right. And I think that's, I think Harvard even came out and said, Hey, you know, there's this part in the report and we're going to do that basically. Yeah. Which I do commend them for that. You know, right. I do commend right. them for that. Um, and it's just interesting too, because I think uh, for the 2027 class of Harvard graduates that were just admitted, 30% of the, the admit of uh, the students admitted were actually Asian American, uh, right. only 15% were uh, African American. And I think 12% were Latino American or something like that, Latino. Uh, but um, so it's, 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 you know, it's, 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 it's nice to see that they're right. You know, they, they can, they'll look for ways to try and continue to have a uh, diversity on their, on their campuses because it's just definitely right. And the other and, and, thing, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that that's and that's a that's a good thing. However, that doesn't mean that all colleges are going to do that. This is very true, uh, especially and and this is an assumption. But let's look at red states. Exactly. That would have that would have been you know those politicians, those people in those positions and in, in uh, college boards that would have supported this repealing of uh, affirmative action. Um, now they don't have to follow it. Now it's left up to their integrity to 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 find a way to make some diversity. Oh. I don't think we're going to see it. But what about private schools, though, too? And that was the distinction between Harvard and UNC. I mean, if you were a private school, you could do what you wanted, not to discriminate, but you didn't have to affirmatively have an affirmative action program, right? Yeah, you know, especially with these other colleges, like the names of them are kind of falling off out of my brain at the moment. But there's these these Christian conservative colleges. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, what was the one of what was it? Uh, the late Jerry Falwell founded uh, that mm. at Liberty Liberty University. And uh, there's one out in Texas, too. I forgot. But this, you know, I don't even think they probably even have. A, I mean, who knows? They probably even have one in the first place. Right. Right, right, right. But like colleges, institutions like that um, allows them to specifically not have it and not even care. You know, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. so you know, so it's, it's yeah, you, 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 Jelon, you're you're right. It's like this. It's it's cool for some of these schools that are basically saying, yeah, we're we're devoted to continue to have diversity on campuses. But there's other ones. There's these other ones are going to be like, all right, bet we don't have to do this, and we didn't. Want yeah, it. right. The Supreme Court says we shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now they've got yeah, exactly. The Supreme Court says we can't do it. Like, what, yeah, what do you exactly. expect us to do? Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> so well, yeah, I mean, interesting wrinkle on this. I just wanted to say they they said that U.S. military 
service academies were not part of the ruling. They said it wasn't part of the case, but they acknowledged that there may be a distinct interest there to promote racial diversity. So why is it only in military <laughs> academies, but not other colleges? They need minorities in the military. Maybe yeah. historically, historically, that's how they they fill out those x-rays because they go to the people who are disenfranchised, they go to the people who are poor and they say, listen, you know, we got your guaranteed paycheck. We got you a bunch of benefits. We got your retirement plan. You know, this is a way for you to go forward. We can pay for your school. This is a way for you to go forward. And we can use basically poor people and disenfranchised people to fill out our military, to put them in front of the uh, front of the bullets um, yeah. by a promise or the promise. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But do you see how from a constitutional perspective, this all kind of falls apart with that one footnote? The, yeah, the but this doesn't make any sense now, right? If you should try to sell me this as your real analysis, but you're saying, oh, but we're making an exception for military academies? They're right. How does that and make any sense? I wonder how that point was brought up, or if it was, or if anyone, there was pushback on that. Like, It was a footnote in the opinion, and they're saying that, well, that this wasn't what this case is about, right? So I, I think their excuse is... Right. To challenge it, you you know you would need someone to specifically challenge the emissions process in military schools. They're saying that might be a little bit of a different story. They're not really expanding on why that's a different story, though. Why is it so right. different? Yeah, I mean, from from the the way of thinking, like you just pointed out, like that should have applied as well. But yeah, I can see they're going to make that distinction on it. And now I'm wondering, do you think strategically? Because Harvard, Harvard, you, you made the point. Harvard was a private school. UNC is a public school that if strategically this was the point of having the two different lawsuits is so that they could they could attack private and public right because the right exactly if you want to challenge this um for a public school you need to bring up the 14th amendment argument the equal protection clause constitutional analysis you have to do the civil rights argument for the private school but the court just kind of merged these cases and used the same analysis really you would use a similar type analysis here. There are differences between attacking something constitutionally and the Civil Rights Act, but it, it did. The court decided to put, to hear these cases together, decide these cases together, which really sends a message in its own. Right, it's, it's sending the message. Basically, we're not making that distinction. We're not saying that the Equal Protection Clause fails, but the Civil Rights Act is good. We're saying that either way, you just can't do it. Right. right. And I think that was the outcome that they were looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, you mentioned that you, we look back at the history of this. There have been quite a few affirmative action related cases that come before the Supreme Court. You know, it's like the one that you mentioned in 2003. I, rem I remember that. Uh, and like even Bloom up with the student fair admissions you know, group, they've called they brought multiple uh cases for i think one of them was where they were mainly representing a, a caucasian woman you know and i'm sure their website probably had more caucasian probably had caucasian women on the website at the time but now of course you know that's it's but it's a, it's a strategy you know and um trying to put pit you know uh people of color uh against each other but it's just something that you look back at bloom's history himself he's the architect of all this and it's right. not some conspiracy theory or anything like that. You literally go back and look up the cases and all that stuff. There's really literally right there. And he's been doing it for decades. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just now the most recent stuff has been through this organization. He founded back in 2014. Now that's the new face for him of doing it, but he was doing it even before. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about the Thomas concurrence briefly and then get into the dissents, which actually have bars. So I want, I want to get into that a little bit, <laughs> but the, 
I just, I just imagine like someone in like the audience when like, <laughs> reading the descent. Bars, yeah. bars, yeah. son. Yeah. 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 Imagine if it's like if it was like treated like a rap battle, right? You're like, yo, yo, hold up, hold up, let her cook, let her cook. Like, <laughs> yeah. slow it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, yo, I said, <laughs> I just rebutted you. Right. <laughs> you heard that precedent? <laughs> so the Thomas concurrent, you know, he's really out on a limb. And we talked about that when it came to the abortion decision. So he agrees with the result, right? He voted obviously with the majority, but he's writing his own separate opinion because he's saying that he wants to go even further. He's not satisfied with saying that you can't have affirmative action in college admissions. He thinks that all affirmative action should be banned. This is what he's saying. And right. He says Grutter was wrongly decided. That's the case from 2003, where they said you can't have a racial quota, but you can take race into consideration. He says he voted for that. He was a concurrence in that. So 20 years ago, he was on board with this idea that race can be a factor. And now he's saying that that case was wrongly decided. He wishes that could be outright overturned. And we saw him doing this, like I said, with the abortion issue, right? He said, yeah, I agree with the reasoning, but it shouldn't only apply to abortion. It should apply to all these other things, you know, uh, birth control and what have you. Crazily, you know, mm-hmm. more conservative than the conservative majority, because even in that case, they were very careful to say, well, it's a special case. Our reasoning here only applies to abortion, right? Which, again, a bit of a cop out, sure. But at least I had that sanity, I guess, to say that we're not undoing everything that we rely on as rights based on this analysis. Thomas again is saying, no, hold up. You know, we, we have this constitutional analysis. Why stop here? Let's just use it to ban all affirmative action, which I guess um, kind of what you were asking about, Jay, also, right? And, and I think KJ mentioned this as well. Like, this is not going to stop here. You know, the door is open now and Thomas is welcoming more challenges to more things, not just college admissions. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I mean, of course, it's it's my opinion and speculation. I think it's a case of, you know, Thomas has been in that position for decades now, and now he's he's forgotten where he came from. He's forgotten how he got there, and he's feeling entitled to the point where, like, yeah, I got here because uh, I'm super freaking awesome, and not because I had help along the way. Um, and that there was a, um, I think there was, uh, I, I sent it to you a couple of days ago, KJ, where there was this interview, and I think it was a documentary or something talking about Thomas, and they were looking at some of his previous colleagues and uh, school school um, classmates and whatnot. And they were going into the mind of Thomas, uh, as far as how he felt when he was got admissions, because it was still a very discriminatory time where uh, they were looked at as not deserving to be there. And so, you know, some of this could play on his psyche on, you know, how, you know, he felt, you know, now he's got the power to do something about it uh, or the power to, to uh, you know, calm his his whatever. And so now he's doing something. I mean, it's, of course, that's speculation, but, you know, it comes down to the conservative majority on on the panel now and they can basically do what conservatives have been trying to trying to do for decades. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like so, they've, they've been trying, and uh, and I think, you know, you know I'm I'm a very big cynic when it comes to Clarence Thomas. I think that he has, over the years, got more and more and more comfortable in his conservatism of being able to express it, uh, and and uh, and even though these these recent years, the the Trump effect, I think he's even been impacted by it too. You know, his wife was out there in support of January six folks. Uh, and so I think Thomas has gotten even more comfortable in his stances of conservatism. And I believe that, you know, he wrote his own um, um, 
I can forget the term for it for this uh, for this ruling. Cards. Yeah, yes, and he wrote his own because he he knows how it looks as far as him being a, a black conservative on the court, and so he wanted to not it's it's it, as as he didn't i don't think he wrote of course this is just pure speculation but i don't think he wrote it as like a uh a defense of himself by no means you know he wanted to be an extremely strong voice because conservatives like to try to oh well this black person is saying this or this black person is saying that and he wanted to be that voice he wanted to be a very strong voice that allows for all these other lawsuits that will come out and attack other programs that uh help to uh help uh to progress to help progress in this country and uh and so i think that ultimately that's what that was his big thing and uh and that's why he wanted to see if he could even go further on than what the actual you know apparent yeah. um, decision. And, and the majority knows that thomas does this he did it before he just did it well in the abortion case so maybe at this right. point if we're being cynical, maybe the majority would have gone farther, but they said, let's just let Thomas do it. Let's let him let's do it. some face. We'll say, hey, you know what? We're kind of just being very narrow here and we don't we don't look so evil. Thomas is going to do that for us. He's going to play the villain. Right. I think I think partly in that in that way. And again, you know, there's no you know, it's kind of my opinion, speculation or whatnot. But it and, and partly in that way, it could be Thomas seeking approval um, mm-hmm. to validate his position. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I listen. I'm voting against affirmative action. I'm voting against these these things that that you know help help people get a, get a, a seat at the table that I I might have used, but I'm I'm, help, I'm voting against it because I think people should be on their merits. And by doing that, it says I'm here on my merits only. Right. I didn't have any help. I earned this all myself. Right. right. He's validating his own his own position in that regard. And they say in some regard, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And I think there could right. be some of that that plays into that. Of course, that can't be proven. But I think that some of that plays into that. And if we look at some of his classmates um, talking about Thomas, if we look at that and we take that at face value, I think that could play into it a little bit as well. Right. Right. Yeah. No, no it's it's. As well, Thomas uses the phrase originalist constitutionalist to describe himself. And those those are those real conservative buzzwords, right? He's trying to score points with that crowd. Absolutely. So, all right, let's get into the Sotomayor dissent, which was joined by Justices Kagan and Jackson. Mm -hmm. And like I said, dissents were read on the bench for the first time since 2019. This dissent, I think, was really well done. They talk about how the guarantee of equal protection can be enforced through race conscious means in a society that is not and has never been colorblind. The majority opinion really embodies the privilege of regarding race without that historical or societal context. Then it talks about the 14th Amendment, including the Equal Protection Clause, was passed in the wake of the Civil War. The majority fails to put that in perspective. The Civil Rights Act of 1866 was passed contemporaneously with the 14th Amendment. And so the 14th Amendment was really passed to try to undo some of the injustices caused by slavery coming out of the Civil War. It's trying to give Black Americans in particular equal rights. Now, yes, it's interpreted to mean equal rights apply to everyone, and that is true, but you have to put that historical context, I think, uh, you know, uh, in mind when, when you're coming up with a decision like this. You don't just look at this in a vacuum. You have to look at what the history is and why we have these provisions of law, what they're meant to do, what they're meant to protect. And the majority opinion was really naive, probably intentionally so, but naive to all of that. And here's where I put 
bars for the first time in my my notes. Um, <laughs> they talk about Brown v. Board of Education. So when we started this discussion, you know, I pointed out how the majority right away goes to Brown v. Board of Education to make themselves seem like these crusaders on the issue, right? Like we're now coming out with our latest in a line of great civil rights decisions, Brown v. Board of Education, now this. Um, the dissent says, you don't know Brown v. Board of Education. It was Justice Thurgood Marshall, right, who was the lawyer who argued Brown v. Board of Education, and he rejected the framework that the majority is using. So if you're going to use Brown v. Board of Education, the lawyer who actually argued that case disagrees with everything you're saying about it. Absolutely. And also the, the lawyer who went on to be on the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he upheld all of that constitutional exactly. framework. He exactly. Upheld, yep, yeah, upheld all of that. Yeah. Even once he passed, Clarence Thomas took a seat. But, but the fact that Ter Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court and Jackson is on the Supreme Court and Sotomayor is on the Supreme Court is evidence that we don't need those affirmative <laughs> actions. <laughs> and that's, that's exactly, I think it was Roberts, yeah. right? Didn't Roberts put that in his opinion when he was gutting the Voting Rights Act? The fact that we have a yeah. black president is proof that we no longer need protections. Yeah, Racism right. is done. Like That's what he was saying, right? He put that in the decision. That's their argument. It's always their argument is that when you have someone from a minority group get some sort of grand success, that uh, racism doesn't exist because it ignores the majority of the others who don't have that. Success. Anecdotal. It's anecdotal. And it, right, it, it's, it's just looking at things in a vacuum and being ignorant, probably deliberately so. You know, yeah, I would look at, look at that. You know, they're, they're not just people aren't disenfran disenfranchised or disadvantaged. Look, you've got Oprah. Right, you know, right. Exactly. Billionaire. You know, women aren't, aren't disenfranchised. You know, Oprah, she's a billionaire. She's a woman. I would argue, this might be controversial, but I would argue the fact that Trump was president for four years proves that affirmative action is needed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. shows racism is alive and well. Absolutely. 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 And the thing about affirmative action, too, is our studies have shown time and time again, the biggest benefactor of affirmative action programs are actually uh, white women. White women. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the people. People like when I talk about MWBE, like people forget the W stands for women. I mean, you know, yeah. people inside of that. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think you know, Trump's presidency also presidency is also evidence that we need a mental health evaluation for uh, <laughs> candidates. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, okay. So the dissent also brings up that Grutter case, and they said student body diversity is a compelling state interest. And they mentioned academic freedom. I like that term, academic freedom, and the integrity of the institutions, of the colleges. They said having a diverse student body is good for everyone, including the white and Asian students, because everyone benefits from it, which is what I was saying before. You know, I think that's really the way to frame the argument. And I don't know if it wasn't done effectively enough by the lawyers arguing this case on behalf of the schools. But when you talk about the compelling state interest, I think that's what you want to talk about, the student body diversity, you know, the academic freedom, the integrity of the institutions. And again, that all goes to preventing and combating, uh, mitigating against systemic racism and correcting those injustices. That's the compelling interest. How could you argue that's not a compelling interest? You know, I think that's really the way to frame it. I think to me, I think from our point of view, that sounds like a compelling interest. But from the opposing point of view, I don't, I don't think it sounds like a compelling interest to them. Right. It's not a way to to sway their opinion to say that, oh, we need 
you know, we need this this mix and a variety of people in here to to have this diversity to have an enriching. Well, I, I I hear that, but from a constitutional, they don't give it. Uh, no, I hear that. I, I agree with that, but politically so. But from a constitutional legal point of view, don't you think it's hard to argue that combating systemic racism is not a compelling state interest? If you don't, if you, that's only if you agree that systemic racism exists. If you, if your position is that it doesn't exist, then that point has, has no, has no teeth. But the court is not saying it doesn't exist. I mean, yes, they have said stupid things like, oh, racism is pretty much over now. But, but in this case, you, you don't see any lies like that. that There's no more racism, right? They're just saying that, um, oh, a marketplace of ideas is kind of vague and it assumes that every person of a certain race thinks the same way. They're, maybe they're being very delicate how they're attacking it, but it seems like they're saying that the compelling interest wasn't really stated here. You know, they're not saying that combating racism is not a compelling interest. They're saying that wasn't the interest cited by the schools. Yeah, I, I'm just saying that it's it's kind of a um, you know we don't we we can't point to the racism and and for them to be like yeah okay we agree that that's there. Right. For them to make this decision, I think it's it's easy to and, and probably viable to to go ahead and presume that they're coming from this position that systemic racism doesn't exist in their mentality for them to even make the decision because they're saying it's not necessary. Why would it be necessary? It's not right. here. Right? right. And so this idea that uh, we that we think is 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 paramount and, and super awesome to them is like. Yeah, well, it's, it's not necessary. It doesn't exist. It's not there. And so I think we can miss that, miss the point in an argument with with them, especially sure. if they've got the power in the majority. Um, I think a more a stronger argument probably comes down to something that's more tangible, right? Like what KJ mentioned earlier, somehow economics. You know, this is tangible. This is right. But you still need to identify what the compelling interest is. And then you prove it with those tangible factors, right? With the proof, with the evidence, you, you have the data to back it up. But you yeah. still need to be able to show and articulate what that interest is. And the majority isn't saying that fighting racism is not a compelling interest. They're saying, oh, it's, it's commendable that you want a marketplace of ideas. But that's a very vague thing to say. So, I mean, they might be playing word games of their own here, but yeah. they're not outright shooting down this idea that racism is is a thing and fighting it is is compelling right <laughs> they're not saying that uh but, yeah, but we know that side kind of implies right right yeah. we know that side the decision implies that and we also know that yeah. side often has that talking point yeah. that mentality that this doesn't exist systemic doesn't doesn't exist how we had we had barack obama um how we have oprah like this doesn't exist like it's just something that's you're why you, part. that's why you got to come in with the, with the facts though with the data right. yeah yeah something tangible that's that's yeah. my point yeah. Yeah. it has to be something tangible instead of saying that well you know it, it's not really tangible for for us to go in and say well there is this benefit to having uh, a people of all different races in the group because it's not a really tangible thing that you can hold on to there to yeah. to actually combat the argument that they're putting out that it's but that's that my point yeah no that that is my point right like the if you read the majority opinion it's framed in such a way that makes it sound like the colleges went in and they were just like yeah it's better for us to have diversity in this in the school and that was it just tr why trust us how are you doing it how are you coming up with this classification i oh, just trust us we're just doing it that's how right. the majority opinion is written to make them look bad and and i don't know how much they're actually doing that and how arrogant they really are it makes them seem like they're arrogant and they, they just have this like idea in their heads and it, it almost kind of paints them as like these like elitist 
um, you know, arrogant people that you always hear about the conservatives talk about, right? Like these coastal elites, that's kind of how, how they frame it. But you would need to have all the data showing and showing why you have these classifications, showing why it's important. Why is it, why is a diverse body important? Why wouldn't you have a diverse student body without these programs? Like you have to show all of that. Right. So, um, but I, I like, I like the sense framing of it though, in terms of academic freedom and how you want to preserve the integrity of the very institutions, right? The institutions on the whole suffer. And that brings us all down. If you don't have this academic freedom and they make the point that again, prior to these affirmative action programs, only the elite students who were black and Hispanic were able to get into a school like Harvard. Most of the times it was basically all white and Asian. Um, that's a problem that is to the detriment of our institutions, which is to the detriment of our whole country. Right? I mean, so it's not just about one group versus another. I think it's about helping everyone and just kind of uplifting the integrity of our institutions. What were you going to say, KJ? No, I was saying that, uh, actually, I, mean, I forgot what the point I was about to say, <laughs> but, uh, but, oh, no, I was saying is that, that that really does make me wonder again about exactly how this was argued. Yeah, you know, it really makes me wonder. And uh, like, what was presented? What was that compelling argument that they pushed forward? What was the data that they showed or lack thereof? You know, just really yeah. I do want to go deeper into that. I will say that the dissent does say that the schools introduced dozens of fact witnesses, experts, and documentary evidence, whereas the petitioners did not. I think they just had two people testifying, and so. According to the dissent, the schools actually had more data on their side, but I don't know exactly what they did and how they argued it. For right. the for the majority to even be able to say what they said, it kind of made mm -hmm. it a little confused, like, ooh, like, you know, that's, that sounds kind of odd. Right. But I also put in here, you know, to play devil's advocate. So the dissent talks about how it's good for everyone to have a diverse student body. Of course, and I think Jay mentioned this point also, if you were one of the students who didn't get in, you probably wouldn't feel like it was good for everyone. You would, you would feel like you were suffering. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And I think I think that's that's an important thing to, to bring in mind that um, people have to remember, like there's sometimes you just can't get in. Uh -huh. And yeah. going going and saying, look, I'm, I'm gonna file a lawsuit because now I'm, I'm didn't get into the school that I wanted to get in into because of those people or whatever, you know, again, it's a case of hurt people, hurt people. Like sometimes it's just not, not possible, you know, and, and we have to understand that as well. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a big issue there. So I have another bar here from the descent bars. Equality requires. The it sounds like a book. It sounds like some kind of a bars from the descent. <laughs> yeah, I could write like uh, like a Cliff Notes type thing on Supreme Court cases, but I have like the bars. So like the bars. <laughs> that would be kind of dope, like bars. Right, right. right. So here's the quote. Equality requires acknowledgement of inequality. The majority does not view equality through this lens, but presupposes we already have equality. And therefore doing anything to try to correct it is automatically wrong. Um, you know, that's what it is. Well, when we talk about equality, I think oh, the majority, the majority and the dissent have different ideas of what equality means, right? The dissent, I think, correctly identifies that equality requires acknowledging inequalities. In other words, you have to put the entire 
context into consideration here. You can't look at this in a vacuum or in isolation as the majority is trying to do. They're not even acknowledging, and that's Jay's point that they made from a few minutes ago, they're not even acknowledging the situation on the ground, right? They're not acknowledging the inequality that exists. And if you don't have that understanding, then it's hard to come to an agreement on what equality should mean if you know, you're seeing the whole picture in two different ways. Yeah, that's the big thing when it comes to conservatives in this country that you hit the, the huge roadblock right there is that they are not going to acknowledge uh, inequality exists in this country. And since that's their stance, literally everything that is done to fight inequality is, in their view, wrong and reverse, dis- right. reverse racism or reverse discrimination. Right, exactly. And, and it's not seeing that without it, without making these corrective efforts, you have a lot of inequality. Still, it persists. They think that the efforts themselves amount to inequality because I guess everything is just perfect in their minds. Right. Right. Exactly. The good old days for them is what's in their mind. <laughs> Key words there. So the dissent goes on to make the point that the underrepresented minority students are more likely to live in poorer neighborhoods. Again, context missing from the majority. More likely to live in poorer neighborhoods and attend schools with fewer resources, thus not having the same opportunities afforded to others. They talk about the history, the troubled history of these schools when it comes to admissions. They even use the phrase bastion of white supremacy to refer to UNC. And mm-hmm. um, the question now is what will happen? Will even qualified black and Hispanic students be admitted? In the past, they had trouble getting in, even with good grades. And only the elite students made it in over the white students. That, so, well, to my point about the what affirmative action is for, it yeah. really is there to get, uh, you know, the minority students who absolutely deserve right. a, a chance to get in there, you know, because back, the, you know, prior, you know, black folks, Latino folks, Asian folks, people of color who had the grade, who had the grades that were good enough to get into these schools were not being admitted. I mean, I mean, the, the whole evidence, the evidence is there. The, the, the whole reason like HBCUs exist is because of this. They wouldn't exist if that didn't happen. And I think we can look to like we talk about what happened, like what's going to be the result. I think it's uh, I think we can look to what happened in California when they repealed affirmative action and say this is this is probably what's coming. This is with, you know, good reason. This is probably what's coming is there's going to be a significant drop. So a good way to wrap up this discussion, the Jackson dissent has a great line also, more bars coming. The Jackson dissent, I think, really kind of summarizes this entire topic by saying, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. No one benefits from ignorance. Bars. Bars. Like, I think think after she said that, she should have... Like right after she did that, she should have said time and then dropped it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's, you know, and I was mentioned earlier about like, you know, periods of punishment in this country. You know, you had, you had slavery, absolute awful period of time. And we've made a little bit of progress there when the slaves were freed and you started to have the reconstruction era. You got punishment there. Literally, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated for it. And mm-hmm. then you had uh, his successor come in there and stop Reconstruction. Uh, uh, what's the Andrew, what's the name? Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson, yes. Andrew Johnson came there, stopped it, ushered in the uh, era of Jim Crow. And then, you know, and so that was a period of punishment itself. Um, and, 
even though you had, there's so many different periods of time there that uh, where you had periods of, of, of uh, had progress in the period of punishment afterwards. Civil right. rights movement is an example of it. You have the Civil Rights Movement, you have the Civil Rights Act, and the Voting Rights Act go through. Nixon comes into office. Yeah. And then what happens? Mass incarceration because they start yep. their drug war, you know, like targeted people who criticized the Vietnam War and targeted uh, minorities who were uh, very heavily involved in the, the civil rights movement. And you start making progress. You may you fast forward some decades. You make progress under the Obama administration, right. uh, same sex marriage, exactly. care, all that. And then right afterwards, you get someone elected in office and like Trump. And now, in my view, we're in a new uh, period of uh, period of punishment. And you see and all DeSantis is rise in DeSantis. Exactly. He's coming, you know. And so we're in a in what, especially when from a, if you look at it from a Supreme Court view, we are in a decades long period of punishment because these folks are going anywhere for a very long time. And that was, there's a built up from that, you know. Thomas was appointed by uh, H.W. Uh, oh, yeah. Yep. And then, uh, you know, Roberts and uh, uh, and uh, who else was uh, appointed by George W. Mm-hmm. And Trump uh, uh, appointed uh, three others. And that was a that was a slow, uh, slow go. But it worked, you know, and you have even a part of what is that? They're playing the long game. They're playing the long game. And that's what the Republicans did. Even when they started, they fought for decades against the Voter Rights Voting Rights Act. And they yeah. successfully did it, you know, to gut it where now they can make all these changes to the to the voting rights, voting laws in the southern states. Because at first they had to have federal approval to, to do that. Right. Right. Students, they got that overturned by the Supreme Court. Voter ID laws came into play, even more of the gerrymandering, all that stuff. But they are playing a long game and this is part of it. And that's why voting for president is so important. And it, it it's more than about who's going to be in office for the next four years. It's about potentially a generation or more of yeah, exactly. law rights being affected because of the Supreme Court. Yep. The Supreme Court and the, and the lower court judges. You know, Trump right. appointed a ton of conservative judges, judges that yeah. think like him. And then, of course, it's stacking the Supreme Court. That's that's a lifetime appointments here. We're talking, like you said, it's going to be decades, generations like. He just get in, get out, but they've got influence for a long time. And I know I think that's really the most important consideration you should have, in my opinion, when voting for president. You know, what kind of Supreme Court do you want? What do you think our rights should be? How do you think the Constitution should be interpreted? Because that's the long lasting effect of that. A lot of people go in, they think, oh, I think it's time to shake things up. I think it's time for a change. And then four years later, they can vote the other way. All right. But what about the lasting damage you did by enabling that for four years? So think about think about the long term effects of this. Right. Absolutely. I think and I think I think conservatives and the far right are probably a little bit more uh, better at that than than. progressives and liberals because they'll play that long game they'll play that idea of let's, let's stack the courts because we know you know on the surface they're looking at us because they're laughing at 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 you know his way of speaking or whatever but in the, underneath they're like yeah let's get let's get all these these mm-hmm. judges in here let's let's get right. this stuff because right we we've got a long play you know we're we're over here looking at haha this is funny and they're like haha yeah we got you anyway yeah and um, they, then they're looking at also it's like oh we don't care the things he says about women, the care. We don't care. He's assaulted women. We don't care that he is. Got the to be, you're right. Yeah, we, That's we, what they say, right? I don't like the man. I like the policy. You're yeah, right. We don't, we don't care about all that. We don't we care. You, you're canceling. You're, you're, you're upset. You're huffing. I don't care because we got the judges spots. 
yeah, because yeah. we can overturn these things. We can do whatever we want to do. And I know this also brings up a lot of people are talking now about, um, you know, extending the Supreme Court um, to to combat some of this type of stuff. But I, I think I don't think that's I don't think that's a fix, because if it were if it were 12 judges, you know, or 13 judges, you know, they would just stack it with nine. You know, um, I think what has to be looked at here and the people should have some sort of remedy to is the corrupted nature of the Supreme Court as it is today. We've already yeah. seen Roberts and uh, I forget what the other one have been taking basically, hmm. we can assume bribes. Yeah. Um, and that the people should have a remedy to a corrupted Supreme Court. Absolutely. You got Thomas, I think one of these, some of these, one of these conservative donors basically bought his mother's house or something like that's been paying for right. trips for him and his wife you know, stuff. And uh, this is some major player in conservative politics and policy making, you know? Right. And, uh, and, you know, and I would not, me, I wouldn't, you know, if if this is the sort of thing that's going to happen, you know, this could be a very, just me being reactive, but, you know, if at some point we could somehow get a push a constitutional amendment through that would allow for term limits on the Supreme Court, you know, uh, in my view at the moment, you know, I, you know, I'd be supportive of that. You know, of course, that's me being reactive to things that's happening, <laughs> but it makes or at least a, a way to hold them, uh, at least a way to hold them accountable when it's become clear that they're not acting in the interest that they're supposed to be. And actually, I think there is, it is worded in a, such a way that there is a way for that to happen. Because uh, if I'm not mistaken, there was one. There has been one judge in Supreme Court history that was impeached, um, but it's only been enacted once. And I think the wording is um, as long as they're in acting responsibly or something in that in that regard. I forget the exact wording, but yeah, there is a happen in practice. Yeah, it doesn't happen in practice, but there, I think there is a is a, a a way out, so to speak. But it's it's never used and happened. That know. also makes it harder to actually do because we right. have that way out on paper, right? So it's like, well, the system is already there. So what do you, I don't know what right. you guys want. You know, it's like it makes it harder than to advocate for something if there's already a system there. It's just not being used. Right. Right. Yep. So. So all right, we are running a bit long here because we had a very lengthy discussion on that case. So I want to kind of quickly go over the other things because we did have a poll. And I guess we want to put out the poll question for next week too, right? Right. So, so the poll for next week, I guess, will be on this. So why don't we do that first? So the poll question of the week is, do you agree with the recent Supreme Court decision ending affirmative action in college admissions? I can imagine the responses on this, especially the conservatives are going to come out the word work, I think. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I'm going to I want to say that, you know, we did take this whole time basically talking about the affirmative action, action decision. And even though we had mentioned about um, the student loans and potentially the the other case as well. But I, you know, I'm OK if we, you know, don't get as much time in the other ones, because what's really been kind of uh, frustrating and unnerving me since these cases these decisions came out is the talk has been largely about the student loans after that came out after this after the affirmative action it's like there's more focus on the student loan issue than on the affirmative action which to me is is missing like the forest for the trees type of thing right yeah the affirmative action was is the much bigger the much broadly much more broadly reaching decision and right. the student loan ones but everyone's talking about their student loans 
And it's just missing the point. And to me, is more evidence why affirmative action is needed because people don't really seem to care as much about it. I think it's also the 24-7 news cycle. Didn't the affirmative action one come out first? Yeah, it came out. It came out first. Yeah. That's kind of what happens. We even see that, like, you know, something major in the news comes out that everyone should be talking about. And then some celebrity thing happens and that then that becomes a big story. It's like people sometimes don't pay attention to what they really should be. But I think it's also later people have yeah, if people have student loans and they're like, well, I wanted my stuff forgiven. Yeah, for, that's, that's true. Too. It affects a lot of people too. Maybe yeah. maybe more people, right? Because I think they said that the Biden student loan program was going to affect most people who has student loans. Like for me, it didn't even really make much of a difference. It wouldn't have made much of a difference for me. But yeah, I think most people. Me either. <laughs> me neither. I paid off my student loans. But um, we can talk about that briefly. Honestly, there wasn't much to say on this, in my opinion, from a constitutional perspective. It was much shorter. I mean, I say shorter, still 77 pages, but it wasn't the 200 plus pages of the other one. Um, it really just goes into whether the executive branch and really it's the secretary of education here, whether they have the authority to cancel student loans or to enact forgiveness. Right. There was a law passed. And that's really what it comes down to. There was a law passed by Congress in this area. And so the constitutional argument becomes, do we have to then only go by what the law says because Congress acted on this already? Or how much room does the executive have to make changes to this? Their argument, the executive's argument, Biden's argument is that they didn't make new law through the executive branch. They just modified or waived provisions of the law, which is allowed, right? The other side of it is, no, you already have a law on this and you can't just come up with your own provisions. You got to follow the law that's there. And so the court, perhaps predictably, came down on the side of Congress already having acted on this. And this was an improper attempt by the executive branch to legislate. So it's that separation of powers argument that you see over and over again. Of course, Trump, when he was president, had a ton of executive orders. Biden is doing some too. You know, I think the more interesting discussion really here comes from a policy perspective. I mean, if it's got to be Congress, let it be Congress. But action should be taken on this, whoever it comes from. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and you know, the, the student loan thing is like me, it's like if, if that went through, it would have wiped out like the majority of what I have left. And I would have been very, very happy, you know, so, <laughs> um, so I definitely, I've been feeling the sting of that, definitely, <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, you know, and, 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 and the, again, this also goes to the importance of <clears throat> voting in your local, your local elections, and when, I, when I'm calling local, I'm calling, you know, even our House representatives, yeah, that's, yes, that's federal level, yeah. uh, but you got to vote in those I- elections as well, because Congress controls the money, you know, yeah. and then yeah. and if you if, if if we're going to able to if we're going to be in a position to be able to get these student loans uh, forgiven, we also got to We got to elect folks in the House and we got to elect folks in the Senate who are going to pass that legislation to to do that. And Biden knows that it wasn't going to get passed in, in Congress. So he had to go this route, you know, but it's on us. We got to get folks in there so we can get the, the, the number of votes in the Senate and the number of votes in the House that will pass a legislation that will do get this done. You know, and sometimes the executive branch has to take bold action, even if they're not sure it will survive scrutiny, given the current makeup of the court. 
Right. You know, if their hands are tied, like you said, if Congress isn't willing to do it, sometimes you see that bold action coming from the White House. Well, we're, we're going to take a chance on this. And maybe it sticks, maybe it doesn't, but we're doing something, we're making the effort. You know, right. and now from a political point of view, you can see the pushback. Like we said, people have been talking about this case for a long time. So it, it has brought the issue even more so, I think, to the forefront. And maybe it will play an even bigger role in the next election. And so maybe there is a valid strategy in doing that, even if you know it might get overturned. Right. Yeah. No. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to to briefly um, say or, or bring up um, where, as far as the affirmative action fight, and it's been overturned with the Supreme Court and college admissions. What can what's the remedy from here, or what's the next steps in in terms of this fight? Is this possible to to reinstitute? Um, is there something that people can do? Is there something that the fight can be taken back up to try to bring it back in? Um, legally or actively anything like that any sort of remedy in that regard well it's tough now because the supreme court basically said this is what the constitution this is what the civil rights act requires it requires you to be neutral when it comes to the consideration of race in college admissions there are ways that we're seeing we talked about that that they can still try to use it as a factor like for example saying okay we're not going to strictly talk about race we're going to talk about your experiences as a hispanic young man or as an african-american young lady or what have you so you can do things like that in in the schools right if you're really trying to get it overturned if you're trying to get affirmative action implemented again you have to have a better supreme court who's gonna take on that issue again and that means electing a president who has a different opinion uh, as the previous president you know maybe more in line with the current president and if you have enough justices on the court then these things can be revisited i mean that's that's where we are with it i mean the same thing applies to the abortion issue and, and these others that we're seeing you, you have to get people on the court who have a different approach constitutionally and philosophically. Uh, otherwise, the law is going to be that across the country. Once the Supreme Court decides it, all the lower courts are bound by that as well. You know, if it's if it's an area of federal, you know, if it's a federal law, then every federal court has to abide by it. So it's where we are, you know? Yeah, and I think outside of uh, a legal standpoint, a legal remedy, I think now it really does uh, fall on different institutions uh, to uh, to do their best to mitigate the negative impact of this ruling. Uh, I talked about HBCUs. I think I think uh, alumni can do their best to stand to, to stand up and, and donate to uh, HBCUs uh, more. I know there's a lot of folks in influence, uh, not just black celebrities, but, you know, folks who are well off. Who can donate to HBCUs? I think that can that would that's going to be very helpful because I think there's going to be an influx of, of students going to HBCUs. These HBCUs are going to be needing uh, new dorms, going to be needing new facilities. They're going to be needing uh, renovations of their existing facilities, uh, and uh, and that's going to come. There's going to be I think I think there's going to be a new wave there, uh, and that's just on the on the on the college level. It's like now, and in my mind, this impacts you know, you know, when it comes to uh, 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 kids right now. You know, my kids are in, in school right now, and uh, this 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 impacts you know uh, their school. You know, I got to make you know making sure that they get the best education that they can get uh, because you know now these affirmative action programs uh, for college admissions aren't going to be in place, and uh, because unfortunately the uh, the the saying that has been around for decades in the African-American community is that we have to be 10 times better, you know, to, to get, to get ahead, you know, and 
And so it's like that, that's something that weighs on me when I think about that for my own, my own kids. And, uh, and so this, as far as like remedies outside of legal standpoint, there's going to be a lot of people having to step up in different ways to support their, their local schools, to support their, uh, their HBCUs, to support colleges who are doing a great job and continue to work hard to diversify their student body. Um, but it's just, it's going to take that work and, uh, uh, to help, help counteract, you know, this mess. And local might, governments like to, to kind of bring it full circle, local governments like New York City, for example, need to be directing proper resources to these communities to make sure that people can get the chances that they need because it is going to be tougher, you know, and it already is tough. This makes it even tougher. Exactly. And so we need to make sure people are prepared for this world that we're finding ourselves in. Exactly. The next few years, we're going to see what the real results of this is. And I mean, we we may need a a, a green book for Scott for for colleges at some point. Mm. Yeah, you know, say, hey, the data needs to be kept. Definitely. Yeah, like these colleges are practicing this. These colleges yeah. are striving for it. So let's let's put this together. So you know, and that could that could uh, you know impact them economically again. Could go back to economics. Well, but we might, and that might need to be a yeah. thing. At yeah, some point. So to end off, I guess, on a more positive note, we had the poll question from last week. Do you believe people who pled guilty to criminal offenses should have the opportunity to introduce new evidence to overturn their convictions? And this was based on a piece of legislation that passed through Albany. It was waiting for the governor's signature. I've got, let's see, 77% saying yes, 23% saying no. So I think that's encouraging that people think that it should be easier to challenge potentially uh, wrongful convictions. Yeah, and we had um, some responses on on YouTube in that regard. Uh, people were saying uh, yes. Um, some were saying yes because so many confessions are co coerced. There needs to be recourse for that. Um, imagine if you could, if you didn't do it, but you can't prove it, and your lawyer tells you you can't win with this evidence. Now you find out that you're going to do five years on a guilty plea or twenty years if found guilty. Um, what are you going to choose? Um, so people see. Yeah. Uh, I just wish that there was some provision, like we talked about last week, some way for you to say, I'm going to take this deal that the prosecution is offering without admitting guilt, because that makes it more tricky when you admit before the court under oath that you committed the crime. And now later on, you're saying, but I've got evidence to show I was innocent. It's like, wait a minute. Did you just tell the court that you did it? So I wish there was a way for them to be like, yeah, I don't want to fight the case. I'm going to take the punishment. But I'm not admitting guilt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's get this again, another full circle moment. So you think about Central Park Five, their confessions yeah. were, you yeah. know, course, yeah. you know, yeah. that was what happened with them. You know, absolutely. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And so uh, it's, I think it's, it's, it's good to see that there are a lot of people, at least in the, the ones who did answer, seem to lean towards yes, there should be more, um, uh, uh, ability to introduce new evidence for people who even though even though they pled guilty so i think that's that's a good thing yeah as we know dna evidence currently is allowed so now they're trying to expand that beyond just dna evidence to overturn the conviction so that's what i said last week if you're gonna allow DA, dna evidence why limit it to just that so. right so we we like to give our guests the the last word uh here to possibly to sum up what we've said or whatever you like to say, what, what you think might be uh, appropriate. Um, we call it the bottom line. So, Hershon Murphy, what is the bottom line? The bottom line is I think everybody needs to get fired up and go listen to Public Enemy's song, Fight the Power. 
and get hyped up and let's do something about it because stuff's got to get done you know and i think that's and i think that's the that's that that's the energy we need to bring there you go that I takes it back to the music too so you know, all these things are full circle exactly. full circle. Yeah. <laughs> and, and where can we be found mike oh he put me on the spot that was your your thing all right uh i did the bottom podcast. line thing this time so you know slide out <laughs> everywhere podcasts can be found so that's spotify that's apple music wherever you get your podcasts of course we're on youtube you can watch the replays on youtube and we're on youtube podcast now i'm not entirely sure what that is how that's different from a regular youtube video but we're there <laughs> um you can check us out on social media on instagram it's at nuance show we put our polls up there also on my social media on yours so you know check us out we're around absolutely absolutely i think i think we had a pretty good conversation uh today we didn't get to everything but this is a pretty heavy topic this is um you know a, this is a landmark decision like, this is country changing you know it's not a, a minor little thing so um yeah i think it was uh really good glad you you came on figured you'd be the one to, to come in and, and contribute to this I yes know Mike was, on uh, this july 4th no days off shout out to james powers in the chat so you guys aren't taking any days off <laughs> right yeah shout out to james in the chat i see uh i see Vernay in the chat um yeah shout out to everyone so yes as always thank you for joining us thank you jay thank you kj we've got work to do and we will catch you next time